Good morning to everyone. I do really appreciate the elders, Pastor Job and Pastor Mark, giving me this opportunity to open the word with you all this morning. If you have a copy of God's word, please open it to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. This morning we'll be looking at verses 12 through 17, a portion of Matthew 21 headed that of Jesus cleansing the temple. And there Matthew writes, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And he said to them, Do you hear what these, uh, and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of our Lord. We thank him for it. and We depend upon his spirit to apply it to our hearts this morning. As Pastor Mark and Pastor Joe both have said, this morning is Palm Sunday. And typically on Palm Sunday, uh, churches will have messages on Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. In fact, the last two Palm Sundays that I've preached, I've preached on different passages that talk about Christ's triumphal entry. And so I thought this morning we'd look at an event of Holy Week that comes almost right after the triumphal entry, in, in fact, the day after. Most uh, scholars looking through the the synoptic gospels, looking through the harmony of the gospels, rather, um, they they think that the events happened, you know, we've got the triumphal entry on Sunday. Then as Mark uh, chapter 11 shows that that Pastor Joe read, um, after the triumphal entry, Jesus goes to the temple, looks around, and leaves for the evening. Stays that night in Bethany. The next morning, he and his disciples come back to Jerusalem. On the way to Jerusalem, he, he curses the fig tree, which we read out of Mark 11. And then Christ cleanses the temple. It's very interesting. The cleansing of the temple is an event that you might say bookended the, the ministry of Jesus, his earthly ministry. In John chapter 2, he cleanses the temple at the beginning of his ministry. He has the, the miracle in, 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 at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And then the very next thing he does in John chapter 2 is he cleanses the temple the first time. And now here, at almost the end of Christ's earthly ministry, we see him cleansing the temple again. And as we saw, even in the reading this morning, on Sunday, as Christ entered Jerusalem, He entered, on Sunday, he showed his humility. On Monday, Christ shows his authority. 
And so this morning we will look at the idea that Christ has the authority both to restore and to accept proper worship. And therefore, our worship must come from a heart of obedience and be informed by knowledge of the scripture. We often hear this said out of John 4 as worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. And this was the heart of Christ. So first of all, we want to look at the fact that Christ demonstrated divine authority. Verses 12 through 14 that Christ demonstrated divine authority. And first of all, the way he did that is Christ restored the place. Again, uh, starting verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, selling would have been taking place in the court of the Gentiles. If you have a uh, sermon outline that I put in the bulletin, I put a little picture of the temple, uh, the temple property there, uh, temple complex. I know the writing on it's kind of small. I had to kind of try to fit it underneath the outline. But you'll see that large section at the bottom and to the east, and that is the court of the Gentiles. The temple complex had a, a number of courts and you were allowed to proceed to the next court in smaller and smaller numbers. At first, you had the court of the Gentiles, where anybody could go. And then you had the court of women, where only Israelites, only Jews were allowed to go. And then you had the court of the Israelites, which were only men could go. And then the court of the priests, and finally, the holy place, and we know then the holy of holies, where the high priest could only go in that once a year. So the selling would have been taking place in the court of the Gentiles. Now, why were they selling animals, pigeons, as it says here in our text? And why were they changing money in this court? Well, as you're well familiar, no doubt, the Passover was at hand. This was Passover time in Jerusalem. Many people that had come to Jerusalem had traveled from a great distance. And it was hard to get the right animals that great distance. I mean, can you imagine traveling from the north of Israel and you have to bring lambs and all these other things with you, trying to keep them alive, trying to keep... So they, they had to have an uh, animal to sacrifice. And that animal had to be approved. Not only did you have to bring an animal with you, but then the priest had to approve it before you could offer it for sacrifice. And then you had to give your half a shekel temple tax. And many people coming to Jerusalem did not have the, the right sh the shekel. So they had to have their money converted into the correct money to give the temple tax. What was going on here in, in, this, in the, in the uh, idea of selling was not wrong. There was nothing wrong with having animals for sale and having people exchange money. What was wrong? Where they were selling and the fact they were extorting the people. Now, this whole selling and exchange of money uh, was probably set up in the court of Gentiles by Annas, the high priest. In fact, uh, is often referred to in secular materials as the bazaar of Annas. And everything was overpriced 
from the exchange rate down to the pigeons. Now, we understand this, right? I mean, anybody that's been to a sporting event understands this. You buy a hot dog from a street vendor outside the stadium, three bucks, let's just say. You buy a hot dog inside the stadium, 10 bucks. Same for pop, same for, you know, one of my favorites, frozen malts. I mean, anything you buy outside the stadium is going to be significantly cheaper than inside the stadium. So, so we understand that things are premium because they're convenient. R.C. Sproul, uh, commenting on this, says that you could buy a pigeon in Bethany for a quarter of the price that you could buy it in the temple. You could buy, and the exchange rate, some people say it was as much as 50 to 100% that of what the, the money was, was valued at. The problem was where they were selling, and the problem was the Old Testament prohibited extortion, and it prohibited selling at interest. What they were doing was in the wrong place, and it broke many Old Testament commands. And as Pastor Job read in Mark 11, they were even using the temple as a cut through to get from one side of the city to another, which was strictly prohibited, but yet had gotten to be a place of commerce more than a place of worship. So having observed what was going on in the temple on Sunday, Christ re-enters the temple complex on Monday. And right away, he started driving out the merchants who are part of this bazaar of Annas, and in the midst of driving them out, he also overturned the tables and chairs which they were using to conduct their unholy business. And sometimes we call this, or we refer to this as Christ's righteous indignation. Because he was angry. He was upset. And he was completely righteous in the fact that he was upset. And he was righteous in his anger. No doubt, as it did the first time in John chapter 2, this would have reminded the disciples of Psalm 69.9, which says, zeal for your house has consumed me. Christ came and showed, as it says uh, in, John, in uh, Mark, I'm sorry, rather, Matthew chapter 12, that he is Lord of the temple. You remember in Matthew chapter 12, he tells, he tells the, the religious leaders, something greater than the temple is here. And they didn't understand that. And Christ comes into the temple and he decimates what is going on. And just put yourself in that situation for a second. I don't know if, how many of you have been in a situation where someone is destroying everything in sight. But just imagine this, this whole selling and, and buying process is going on and people are there. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Christ starts destroying all these, these, these flipping over these tables. He's, he's trashing the chairs. It would, have been, it would have caused a huge amount of commotion. It would have caused a huge amount of attention. And then Jesus speaks to those who are doing these things. He says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. A den of robbers. Jesus condemned the action of the merchants and religious leaders by teaching them the true purpose for the temple. My house shall be called a house of prayer. It comes from Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah 56, verses 67, the prophet Isaiah writes, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, my covenant these I will bring to my holy mountain. 
and make them joyful in my house of prayer and burn offerings and their, and their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Notice in the, in the Isaiah passage and then also in Mark's telling of this, Mark chapter 11, the Lord said the temple was to be a house of prayer for all people. The Lord has always planned for his presence to be for people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Just as the leaders had missed the why of the temple, the religious leaders also missed the who of the temple. Now, I've told you guys this many times, but I grew up in a... um, in a, in, a, in a part of of Christianity that believe it was very Arminian, and so it I was taught growing up that if the Israelites had accepted Jesus as Savior, there would have been no hope for anyone else. It would have been only only Israel would have been able to be saved. Only only Jews would have been able to be saved. But even back to Isaiah, and over and again we see the Lord's heart. Yes, the, the, the nation of Israel was God's chosen people in the Old Testament, but it has always been, the gospel has always been a message for all people. Christ has always, the point of Christ's coming was to save his people from their sin. And those were the people that God had chosen. And then Christ quotes Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, and condemns the leaders for making the temple a den of robbers. Jeremiah 7, 11 says, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. And the term den of robbers probably referred to the caves and hills around Jerusalem where thieves would hide out. And Christ was saying, you despise thieves. You despise those who assault people on the way. And yet you have turned the Lord temple into that, into a hideout for robbers because of the way you are extorting your brothers and sisters and the way you are, you've turned my temple from a place of worship to a place of business. It had gone from a place of rest, worship, and meditation to a place of extortion. Now, the religious leaders probably would have argued that they were performing a service so the people could keep the law, right? They're, they're saying, hey, look, you know, these people are coming from a long distance, we are giving them, we are offering a service. They can't bring an animal from that long. It would be very difficult for them. They don't have the money they need to give the, temp, to give the temple tax. So we're just doing a service. But as usual, the religious leaders sacrificed the spirit of the law for the letter of the law. We're very familiar with 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, where Samuel says to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And Hosea 6, 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It was more important that the religious leaders obey and observe what the temple was supposed to be than that the people, than that they gave the service to the people in the temple of giving them the right sacrifice. 
Obedience to God and knowledge of God over the letter of the law would have been very difficult for the religious leaders. To them, proper worship was the letter of the law. And so part of the why for Christ cleansing the temple was for Christ to show that he was there to restore proper worship of the Father. And as Pastor Mark has already said, it was also to show the beginning of God's judgment on the temple. But God's judgment was on the temple because the leaders were not worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth, and they were teaching the the people not to do so as well. And interestingly enough, though the priests and the temple guards had power over anyone who entered the temple, they had no power over Christ. Humanly speaking, they had the power to arrest Christ at any time. But they had no power to do anything God did not allow. And we think of Christ telling them, that they have no power, I mean, Christ during his crucifixion, telling Pilate, you have no power unless it's given to you from God. And again, Christ often saying, I give my life up. No one takes it from me. They did not have power over Christ to do anything that God would not allow. So Christ restored the place. And secondly, Christ restored the people. Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now this scene, at the cleansing of the temple is only mentioned by Matthew. The people coming to him, these people, these blind and lame, would have been the many afflicted who were in the temple area seeking to have the many worshipers take compassion on them. We remember the the scene in Acts chapter 3 of James and John coming into the temple and and the the man at at the gate saying, you know, do you have anything to give? And Peter and John saying, we don't, we don't have silver or gold to give you, but what we do, we do, what we do have, we do give to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. But these people would have been in the at the time of Christ would have been in the temple looking for something to from the people who were coming to worship. And it says, the blind and the lame came to him. After this mass chaos of, of him destroying everything, the blind and the lame come to him. The leaders were so blind, but the poor, blind, and lame were giving, given eyes to see. And this really isn't surprising. This is the way the Lord often works. I mean, even in our day, we see over and again, 1 Corinthians one twenty six fulfilled. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. It's not often the prominent and famous in the world that God calls to himself. But he works, he calls to himself those whom he pleases and those who will glorify his name. So Jesus expels the proud and welcomes the humble. He has turned his father's house from a place of business back to a place of healing. And almost in a moment, Christ goes from divine righteous anger to divine righteous compassion. And just imagine this scene. In the midst of broken tables and broken chairs, he's healing broken bodies and broken souls. So Christ showed his divine authority 
over the temple and over the activities that are going on there and over the religious leaders. And then secondly, we see that Christ accepted divine worship. Starting in verse 15. But the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. No, sorry, verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. The chief priests and scribes had been utterly embarrassed by Jesus. So they, in a sense, latch on to the first thing they hear, the children. Now, these chief priests and scribes that, they're, that um, Matthew is talking about, these are most likely representatives of the Sanhedrin, and they're the same group who would try Jesus in less than a week and condemn him to death. Now, these hosannas from the children were probably much more genuine than those of the adults only a day before. Pastor Mark talked about this um, this morning already. The children had no disillusion as to why Christ had come. Those who welcomed Christ to Jerusalem with such excitement the day before would have been surprised at the focus of Christ's cleansing. They would have expected him to go and cleanse the garrison or the palace or Pilate's Hall. But he didn't cleanse any of those places. He cleansed the temple. Also, the adults who gave their hosannas openly in the street would not have done so in the temple. They would have been fearful of being cast out of the temple. And you remember that passage in John 9, where the man who's born blind is healed by Christ, and the, the religious leaders go to his parents and say, who healed him? And they say, well, he's of age. You, you ask him. And the scripture said, it's not that they didn't know. It's because they didn't want to be cast out of the temple. The children had no such fear. And it says that when the priest and the scribe saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple. These wonderful things, literally, when they saw the wonders that he did. The things beyond explanation. The things that would have made them, the things that were ununderstandable. All these wonderful acts of Christ and the praise of the children caused the leaders to respond by being indignant. Now compare Christ's righteous indignation with the indignation of the religious leaders. Christ was indignant over prop, oh, Christ was indignant over improper worship. The leaders were indignant over proper worship. And instead of rejecting the praise that the religious leaders wanted, they look there, it's verse 16, it says, and they said to him, do you not hear what these are saying? In other words, you should be rejecting this. How dare you let them call you the son of David? How dare you let them ask you to save now? Instead of rejecting the worship as, they, as the religious wanted, Christ not only accepted the worship, but he said the children were fulfilling Psalm 8. Verse 2, 
as Pastor Job read in the Old Testament reading. And he says, look, look again there at the end of verse 16. And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And that word prepared there, it's the idea of completely or perfectly preparing something. Christ said, not only is their praise good, their praise is complete. Their praise is perfect. Your worship is wrong. And it's interesting, as John MacArthur says, these children referred to here that are praising the temple, they're probably boys who have just kind of gotten past the age of their bar mitzvah, probably 12, 13, 14-year-old boys. But if you look at the passage that that Christ cites, he says, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you've prepared praise. Christ says, not only are these these children who've been instructed in the word, not only is their praise better than yours, but infants and babies have better praise than you do because you missed the point and you missed who is in the temple. Now, people being upset about their worship not being acceptable goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, right? And Pastor Job talked about this in the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews 11, talking about Abel and Cain and Abel, how Cain killed Abel. We should not be surprised at anger when we point out that certain worship is not acceptable to God. God, as God, Christ as God, can determine and does determine how worship ought to be. We cannot worship in just any way we feel and call it worship. We must worship in spirit from our hearts, but we have to worship also in truth, according to the word. It's not about what worship means to me and how I feel is it, worship should be. No, our worship must be informed by the scripture. Our worship must be informed by the word. And as he did the day before, Christ one again, once again receives the words of the people as being, as being the promised son of David, which was a messianic title. Both times, both in the triumphal entry and here when the children are praising him, the leaders brought to Jesus' attention what was being said. And both times, Jesus acknowledged that he both heard the words and the words were just. And then Christ, as he often did throughout his ministry, rebukes the, li- the religious leaders by calling into question their knowledge of the scriptures. Notice he says there in verse 16, have you never read? Well, of course they've read it. They know it by heart. But Christ saying, is saying, it's, it's not that you've read it. It's not that you know it, even that you know it by heart. It's that it hasn't meant anything. It hasn't made any impact on you. He over and again tells them that being familiar with the word and applying the word are two different things. When I was um, in high school, in junior high and high school, uh, we had in youth group, we had a, a, um, 
kind of a, a program that you would get points and rewards for and different things like that. And um, what we had, we had a book and it was scriptures to memorize. And there were, um, you know, some pithy quotes, I guess you would call them, that to memorize as well. And, and some of them were less than great theologically. Like I remember one was, God will not steer a parked car. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the people who put this program together were genuine and they were trying to find things that, te- that would relate with teenagers, right? But I still, one of the phrases in there still it resonates with me to this day. And it was, it's not how many times you go through the word of God. It's how many times the word of God goes through you. Or in other words, how many times it makes an impact on you. You know, we can read the scripture and we should. I, I try to read through the Bible every year. But so often when we read the scripture, especially in the early morning, if you're like me, it's, it's a task not to just simply drag your eyes over the words until you've done that day and you check it off, right? I mean, we all fall into this. We know that it's a good habit to daily read the word. I mean, we have a privilege that people generations and generations before us until the word was, till the Bible, till the Bible was widely distributed, didn't have. You think about people in, in the, you know, before, especially before the printing press, they couldn't just wake up in the morning, grab whatever their equivalent of coffee was and read the word. They didn't have a copy of it. We have a great privilege. But again, it's not just oh, well, you ought to read the Bible every day. Well, yes, you should. But you ought to understand the Bible every day. And that's a challenge for me because I'm a checkoff guy. I love checklists. I love to-do lists. And I think, oh, that, that, that part, especially when I'm going through like Leviticus and Numbers, man, I'm done. We're good. But no. What Christ is calling the religious leaders to here and what we need to understand is, that we that it's not about head knowledge, it's not about putting in the time as much as it is about heart knowledge and understanding what it is the word is saying. Now, ironically, or maybe we should say pointedly, the end of the passage that Jesus cites, Psalm 8:2, would have caused the religious leaders much consternation, much grief. You can turn over to the Psalm chapter 8 if you'd like to. I'll read it for you. But Psalm chapter 8, verse 2 in the Old Testament says this, Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. And then the psalmist David here gives the purpose. Why has God established strength? Or as, uh, as John Broadus says, this is a, it's, Jesus is quoting from, the Septuagint here in, in, in Matthew. And he says that this word strength has the idea of praise, of, of strength from praise. You've established strength from your foes. What is the purpose? Why has God done this? To still the enemy and the avenger. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have prepared praise or established strength because of your foes to still the image, the, the enemy and the avenger. Even though Christ didn't cite this part of the passage, the religious leaders would have known the continuation of the sentence he did cite. 
especially since it's the purpose statement of that part, that portion of Psalm 8. It was to still the enemy and the avenger. Those who would act on behalf of God in the temple were actually the enemies of God. And religious leaders were constantly fulfilling Isaiah 53.3 without even realizing it. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Christ had come in to the temple to restore proper worship. He had told them that they were violating God's law and that they were desecrating God's house and that the praise of the children was superior to theirs and it just made them angry. So then verse 17, and leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Seems almost like it's an inconsequential verse. Okay, just Christ's next action. But look at verse 17. He left them. Such a simple yet poignant statement. They refused to believe in the sovereign son of David, and they were left in their sins. John MacArthur says of this passage, instead of attacking Rome, Jesus attacked Judaism. Instead of being a conqueror, he was a confronter. Instead of promoting revolution, he preached righteousness. And instead of clearing out the enemy without, he cleaned out the enemy within. Christ came to do his Father's will and to save his people from their sins. He also came to show us what the Father is like and therefore how we should worship our Father in heaven. Worshiping in spirit and truth was the mind of our Savior. When we worship, our worship must be informed by the Scripture. But our worship is not to be wrote rules following. It must come from a heart of love for Christ. And so our challenge this morning as we close is, does our worship come from a place of spirit and truth? Is our worship according to what God has ordained for worship? And does our worship come from a heart that is full of love for Christ and longs to know him better through his word? Let's pray. Our gracious Father, Lord, we do praise you for the truth that you have given us through your word. Father, we long to know you better. We long to serve you as we ought. And we depend on you to enlighten our eyes as we read the scripture and to 
Give us a heart of flesh in the place of our hearts of stone. We pray this week, as we meditate much on what your son came to do, that he came to die, to pay the penalty for the sins of his people, and then to rise again in victory over death, and then eventually in 40 days to ascend back to you, where he is the mediator and ruling and reigning now. Father, would you help us to understand what we study? And Father, would you fill us with love for Christ? We pray these things in his name. Amen.